Anxiety is an integral part of the human existence. Society is in the midst of an anxiety epidemic. All basic needs are met, yet anxiety increases. Anxiety is the most common psychiatric condition. Two times as many people suffer from anxiety than do depression. 40 million people have anxiety disorder. Only one-third of patients receive treatment. These are some of the facts given by Dr. Justin Feinstein about anxiety during the FLOW conference this year. In today's episode, we're going to take a deeper look at the connection between floating and anxiety based on the speeches by Dr. Pan Lin and, of course, Dr. Justin Feinstein. Stay tuned. You're listening to Art of the Flow. Welcome to Art of the Float, where float centers thrive. This is our weekly podcast that tells our stories of running a float center, and where we love giving tips on starting and running our float centers and hopefully assist you in starting yours. You can find us on Facebook at Art of the Float, also on Twitter and Instagram at Art of the Float, and join the conversation by leaving a speak pipe on artofthefloat.com. Visit the site to see show notes, links, pictures from every episode, but also to leave speak pipes and let us know uh, your opinions on any episode, any questions you might have, any thoughts. We'll share them on the air, answer any questions. And as far as that Twitter and Instagram goes, stay tuned to that because we do share lots of tips and tricks as far as our float centers go um, on there as well. Lance has probably been the busiest one on, on Instagram and Twitter, which I guess makes its way to Facebook as well. But he's giving all sorts of tips and tricks on, uh, on the plumbing systems, which has been really fun and helping out the float shop as well. I am one of your co-hosts, Dylan Com. I run the float shop in Portland, Oregon with my wife, Sandra Com, And I am also joined with Amy in Nashville, who owns Float Nashville. Hey, greetings from Music City. Nice. And Lance in Red Deer, yeah, Red Deer, uh, Alberta, Canada. Greetings from Red Deer, Alberta, <laughs> Canada. <laughs> and uh, maybe maybe I'm messing up because I'm nervous here a little bit because I also have my wife, Sandra Calm, on the show tonight. Hello, Sandra. Hi, everyone. <laughs> There's a few reasons we have her on today's episode. We've got a big episode. There's a lot of stuff that we want to cover. Obviously, one of the main things is Justin's speech, and it only made sense to have someone with a master's in nursing on today's episode to break things down a little bit better um, than, I, than I probably any of us could, certainly than I could. Um, so that'll be nice. And also, uh, my wife is, oh boy, I hope I don't get this wrong on the air, 31, th 32 weeks pregnant <laughs> as uh, by the time this airs. Is that correct, Sandra? That is correct. <laughs> Sweet. So, um, <laughs> Shake <hope> it off. <laughs> hopefully we can talk about uh, uh, floating while, while pregnant. It's such a cool topic. And um, well, I'll, I'll save that for, for later. We have a really big announcement uh, from Art of the Float podcast, and should I just jump right into it, guys? Should I share what it is? Go for it. I should do it? All right. Do it. Do it. Do it. We have our first offering to the public, our first uh, product, I guess you could call it, which is uh, based basically off of the round industry roundtable that took place at the Float Conference, that we got a lot of really positive feedback from it. We enjoyed it so much ourselves, learned so much from it, that we want to do that more often. So we are officially starting roundtable discussions online, and the first one is going to be Wednesday, October the 19th at 5 p.m. Mark your calendars. Put it in your calendar now. That's Wednesday, October 19th at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And the main topic for this is going to be pricing, memberships, and client retention. 
Um, so we got into pricing, uh, excuse me, we got into memberships a little bit with the roundtable discussion at the float conference. We're going to dive a lot deeper into that and go over a lot of different types of memberships. I want everybody's ideas uh, to be shared during this. We're going to be jumping around quite a bit to hear everybody's ideas. We're really excited about this. We're really excited to get this off the ground. There's even some really cool technology we'll be using to have everybody involved on in this. Um, I should let everybody know that spots are limited. So if, uh, if you haven't uh, signed up for the newsletter already, do go to artofthefloat.com, sign up for the newsletter. Um, as soon as we have uh, signups available for you guys, we're going to put that out there to you. And just because spots are limited, we do encourage you to sign up as soon as possible. There will be a fee associated with this. So uh, be aware of that, and we'll announce that soon as well. And my goodness, yeah, did I mention it'll be two hours long? And um, we're so excited. I'm excited too. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's probably the main thing is that we're just so excited to keep the dialogue going. And honestly, the longer term plans is to have more of these roundtable discussions mm -hmm. throughout the year and just keep this going uh, and, and keep crowdsourcing people's information and an open dialogue and raising the, the business savvy of, of this entire community. Yeah, that roundtable discussion at the conference was awesome. Um, unfortunately, we were limited to two hours. And in that two hours, we just hit the surface. So I'm excited to see the community come together over the next X amount of time we do these um, roundtables for and really um, really share their ideas and, and work together to, uh, you know, help build the, the community we're going to be. Right, yeah. You know... Oh, go ahead, Amy. I was going to say, I think any every, anybody who was there can say they walked away with some new uh, marketing ideas that they could implement pretty much immediately. In fact, I've already seen a few people who are at the uh, roundtable already taking the plunge and doing a few things that were mentioned there. So mm -hmm. um, you know that it's going to be information rich. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you know, if <laughs> we are only limited to once a year. We'd have to just make it a two-day event. You have to bring a sleeping bag and a tent, and I just don't think they would allow that. So we, we've got to just spread this out over the year, keep the dialogue going. I want to hear about your guys' weeks. I think we'll keep it a little bit shorter tonight uh, so that we can get into Justin, uh, Justin's talk and Pan Lin's talk from the Float Conference. But first, I want to give a shout-out to FloatAway, of course. Uh, FloatAway makes tranquility float tanks, float cabins, float pools. Uh, we'll be talking about Justin's float center. Of course, it's uh, where he's doing research, but I mean, technically he's running a float center and he, he goes through all the same things that we go through uh, as far as the soundproofing, building the perfect float environment, all of that. And one way he's done that is with the, the float around circular pools that are where I have had the best floats of my life. So if you want to have that grade of, of uh, quality float, go to www.floataway.com. Lance, I only got a little snippet of, of what you've been up to. I know it's construction related, but I'm really excited. It sounds like the float shack got upgrades. What's going on? Yeah, we have had um, it was sort of a spur of the moment thing. I, I've had these ideas in my head brewing for, for quite some time. And finally, I took the plunge. I was like, I'm going to do it. Matt, how, what do you think about building this bar? What do you think about building this? And Matt's like, yep. You're in. Let's do it. Huh. So um, the first thing I built um, was this one corner of the shack. There was, well, not the shack, the one corner of our studio. They were sort of empty. There wasn't much going on, sort of collected more dust bunnies than anything. Okay. So um, what I did is I built this 
sort of bar height bench that you would sit at with a stool. And I built that come out about 20 inches from the wall and it's about 10 feet long. So uh, you can work there with a computer or uh, write a book or something. And you're pointed to the wall. So you're sort of, um, you can be focused and, you know, a place to do your work. Um, A lot of cafes will have something like that where you're, you're have a spot to work and you have no distractions and it fills up a, a corner of the, the room that was would rather be empty so I built that and then I posted in float facilitators um, a few weeks ago about our tea bar asking what people were doing for teas because a lot of float centers were all for teas or complimentary drinks before or after their float and um, at first well we've always been using a loose leaf tea and then we'd have to boil water get the loose leaf tea pour it in our little tea steeper thing and wait for it to steep and press the button and like you know that's just a quarter of the procedure of what it would take to make tea and it just wasn't working it wasn't inviting it wasn't you have to educate them not many people like how it even works like yeah and that's what would happen we'd be between changeovers trying to focus on um cleaning the room or something but then We'd have to put on our big, happy, smiley face and say, yeah, you want some tea? Yeah. And then, you know, get it hot and try to explain to them how to do it while we, you know, we're, we're missing time on our, our cleanup time. So oh. we, we wanted to wipe the whole thing we have out and we're, we're starting from scratch. We're doing it differently. We're doing it right. And um, the whole point of this is to get people in our space longer. And this all clicked for me. When um, actually Dr. Feinstein was speaking at the conference about um, serenity. I think serenity was the the term he used. Serenity now, Jerry. Serenity now. Serenity now. (laughs) So uh, he was saying it takes about 30 (laughs) minutes after your float when those effects of serenity start to sink in. Mm. So I have a goal to get people to hang out at least 30 minutes after their float and still be in my center when those effects of serenity come on, because once they're in my space or not my space, sorry, it sounds weird. Once they're in the, the studio, the yeah. float studio and those effects of serenity come on, they're absorbing the surroundings that, 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 that they're in the yeah. space around them. And then they'll go home they'll talk about it. They're more like more likely to come back and build that connection and build that relationship. So I really, I want people to be staying longer. So this bar we're building, we have, we're normally getting like those 20 liter water, like blue water jugs Mm -hmm. that we use on a water cooler. And we end up paying about a hundred dollars a month for that. Mm -hmm. And, um, we want to cut that expense out. So I got a reverse osmosis filtration kit that I've plumbed in and that's going to be our water. And then I'm also getting this little hot water on demand, heater that we're also putting underneath this bar so um, basically the hot water is there for the tea there's no boiling there's nothing it's instantly there we're moving to tea bags so instead of loose leaf tea or anything like that they're in bags and we're also going to have a couple things on tap so we're going to have kombucha on tap i actually have a friend here in red deer wild child brood Um, they're starting up a brewery right down the street from us so um, we're going to have their kombucha on tap, and I'm also going to have, like, a club soda or a tonic water nice. so we can make different Italian sodas or add fruit or <laughs> something like that Damn. and change it up seasonally. Yeah, and... Okay. Um, wait, wait, wait. i got to push pause. You've covered so much. This is awesome. Yeah. Um, so, first of all, uh, you called it MySpace, which I think is awesome 
because it is your space. Like you have ownership over the space. You want people to feel a particular way in your space. Like you, you pause to be like, I mean, the, the, the space of the float shack or the center, but really it is, it's you. It's an extension of you. It's your space. So I thought that was really cool that you called it my space. Um, but the other thing is you're improving your customer experience and saving money doing it. Is that correct? Um, well, I'm saving money on the cost of water uh-huh. and hopefully the cost of tea and the cost of like employees having to like <laughs> clean up things all the time and make tea and stuff like that. Oh, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now the ROI on this is zero. I'm just hoping that people will enjoy the space sure, more sure. and they'll build that relationship with the center more. So I love it. Um, so I it's, it's really it. just building for the community. It's always working outwards, I guess. And, I don't know. And how – so were you – did you shut down to install the bar? <laughs> no. I I did the first bar on, I think, Saturday night or Friday night, and I worked until 4.30 that morning. And then I got up uh, – I had to get it back up at 7 and clean everything before Matt showed up and seen the mess I left. <laughs> and then um, – <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and then uh, yeah, I had a day off, and then me building that that uh, that little bar over there, um, sort of inspired Matt to jump along on the building the other wall, and we just hammered it out. We started at nine o'clock yesterday morning, and we framed it. We got water put to it. We got electrical in. Um, we got it all framed, and then today, Damn. I. Didn't finish the countertop, but I got the countertop on, so it's mudded. It's pretty much ready for paint. Tomorrow evening, it should be done. That's incredible, Lance. That's really so, cool. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we worked till like oh, 2.30 last night, so. So how <laughs> you feeling today? <laughs> how you feeling Good. tonight? <laughs> Good. I'm ready to do the podcast. There we go. Can we can we fi- uh, share some of the pictures uh, on Art of the Float? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, sure. I think I have some funny, funny vlog videos I made, too, so. <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> awesome. And Amy, you're back from uh, Florida, yeah? Yep. Nice. Back work from Florida, I made over. it. Made it. We have work <laughs> vacation is definitely over. I went into work this morning, and I was very, oh. I, I was reminded of that uh, the moment I walked okay. in the door. But it was good. No, 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 it's all good. Um, it's good. It was good to be gone, nice. and it's really, really good to be back. So. Um, I got to catch up on everything and, uh, nothing has burnt down and, you know, everything's still standing. So life is good. Uh, yeah. So it was actually wonderful. It was a wonderful uh, thing for me. And I was talking to our business coach today and I, I was saying that I, I think I need to do this, uh, quarterly, uh, because it gives you a, it gave me a very different perspective and it gave me a lot of clarity on how I work well and how I can be productive and uh, what I can accomplish when I am not in the yep, midst yep. of everything. Because y'all know, when you, when you run the center yep. and you're there, everybody needs your attention. And, uh, yeah, we, we don't get things done when <laughs> I'm distracted. <That's> right. <laughs> so, okay, I don't get things done when I'm Nobody distracted. Nobody does. Nobody does. It's so hard to get work good. done while, while running the business. I mean, like, while running the business from inside the business. Yeah. Very, very true. Anything else going on this week now that you're back? Yeah. Yeah. So actually, I noticed there's some things uh, going on. Uh, I believe it was in float tank facilitators. I got some questions, and I wanted to make sure I took a few moments to answer those questions now that I'm back. 
Um, the first one is somebody had asked how many tennis balls that we used for the tank hack that I spoke of last week, where Mark was taking tennis balls and putting them in the tank, letting it run for 20 to 30 minutes after we've had someone who uh, got some soap in the tank, some soap got thrown into the tank. Um, now he's using them on a pretty regular basis throughout the week, but we uh, use wow. six, six standard cheap tennis balls. And I got to see it for myself today. Uh, we had a little bit of um, soap on the top of the water. Mark said, watch this. And sure enough, it worked beautifully. So, nice. and we just rinse them off afterwards and reuse them. That's so it's been rad. fantastic. And is this good for oils on top of the water too? Yeah, it just seems to cleans I, i'm shocked i'll be honest with you i uh, mark told me this and i was kind of skeptical i'll be honest uh-huh like they're freaking tennis balls what are they gonna right, do right right um so. but yeah i was really i was really impressed and we've tried all the sponges and the things uh, that i know y'all have had some success with and it just never it never quite worked as well as we had hoped it would uh, but for the cost of the six tennis balls it's been it's been fantastic it's been a good ROI for sure. It's so funny. I love it. Good investment. Cool. And the Thank other you for sharing. And yeah. We'll start doing that too, by the way, at the float yeah, shop. Give it a try. Tell me what you think. <laughs> and the other question I got was um there was some discussion about uh what happens when a charity asks for floats for uh for an auction or for some some event or fundraiser. And I had made the comment that at Float Nashville we do um, have policies in place to deal with this. And the reason we do is in Nashville, uh, we have over 700 nonprofits. We are a very nonprofit heavy town. And I think it's because of that, or because of my, probably my involvement with nonprofit for, for quite a few years, uh, we get asks almost weekly. I don't know. Is that normal for y'all? How often do y'all get, uh, yeah, absolutely. Asks? Do you get asked frequently? Oh, I, I say we get a uh, weekly ask, especially um, it seems as it gets into the fall and holiday season that there are more auctions and such yeah. that people get a lot more. And I love, too. I love to give uh, to those things. You know, I was working in nonprofit for as long as I have. Um, I feel for them and I want to give as much as I can, but it got to the point where we just could not do it. And we realized that we had to put some things in place that would um, make sure that we were giving to the people that we really felt connected to or that we needed to the most and I got a I got a question about that so I thought I'd just run through our process super fast and please feel free to jump in if y'all have anything um, externally we do specifically ask that uh, anyone who asks for a donation be a 501c3 or have that 501c3 status and we also ask that the proceeds for the event stay in our community that is just a personal preference. Um, that's just something that we believe in. All of our discounts are based on um, helping community uh, programs. So that's just something that we believe strongly, and it's not based on anything other than that. We are in the process of putting a donation application page on our website. And once we get that information, so hopefully that'll weed out the majority of, of people or part of the people. But internally, things that we look at are how will the donation be used? Is it going to be a raffle, an auction, a silent auction? The reason we ask that is simply because we, uh, in the beginning, worked with some radio stations, and we found out they were just kind of randomly giving it away to people, and it wasn't even off of a stage. They were just kind of like, oh, you know, somebody comes by the booth like, hey, have you heard of this place? You should go check it out. There was no, you know, when we, when we give something, 
everybody should win. I believe everything should be a win-win situation. And we just mm-hmm. don't, we want to make sure that it is win-win for everybody, that everybody's benefiting in some way. Um, the other thing we looked at is we always ask, can we be present at the event or at least put brochures out? That's not always the case, but if you don't ask, you don't know. We've had some situations where um, because we asked, they're like, oh, yeah, come on out and put a, you know, put a table up. Or do you have some brochures? We'll put some brochures out. We would have never had that had we not asked. Um, how many people are attending? It does make a difference to us if um, 25 people are attending. If it's a support group, we want to we wanna know a little bit more about it. Can we come and talk if it's a lower number of people or, or something? Or is this for a large event? Um, that can make a difference in our decision. Uh, also, let's see, is there going to be any mention social media-wise, um, or will there be some sort of recognition of the donation? Mm-hmm. Once again, that's not a, that's not a cool. break. That's, that won't break the bank, but it's good to know. And also, yeah. we always want to vet the organization. Number one, is it something that we're proud to support? Uh, we want to make sure we've had some things come in where we, on a personal level, have issues with some of the things that they support, and we just didn't feel that it would be proper for us to be associated with it. And also, I like to vet what amount of their total budget is spent on admin and how much is put into the program. Wow. So, things to think about. Yeah. I, I feel like your history of working with non working for nonprofits is yeah. showing you here. <laughs> like, you know, what, you know what to ask. Yeah. That's great. So important things. And real quick, I just wanted to say, if you want to check on what the, uh, what the uh, uh, community is doing, what the nonprofit is doing, Check like someplace like Charity Navigator, Guide Star, or Charity Watch. They all keep tabs on organizations. You can see the percentage breakdown and how they spend their money. So just a few little things, uh, just policies that that we feel are important uh, that we that we look for whenever we are given an ask. Amy, that's great. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's some good Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Um, I had a great week. I've been floating a lot, which I'm loving. And, uh, I had a very special float, uh, it's a very unique style of float, but I'm going to save that for next week's episode because I want to, I want to have Sandra share her, her week. And actually it's, it's not just her week. If, 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 uh, you know, she doesn't join us every week, if she could just share, hi, Sandra, uh, floating, floating while pregnant. <laughs> can you, can you talk to us yeah. a little bit? Yeah, I think this is Dylan's week, too, because this certainly affects how uh, I feel. It affects how he feels. <laughs> All the help he needs to give me. Um, so, yeah, man, um, I am 32 weeks pregnant now, um, and it is uh, an incredible road. Um, we are thankfully having a great, healthy pregnancy, and everything's going great. And, man, the number of challenges that just crop up over time Um it's something to behold. Um, and floating has been incredibly helpful to me, um, even more so than I expected it would be. Um, I'm sure, you know, all of you out there share the kind of passion and fervor, uh, as I have, um, for floating and, uh, so much hope for what it can do. And then to experience it myself is, um, it's, it's, uh, it's far more than I expected. So just to talk a little bit about, um, one aspect of things, just purely the physical aspects, because by all means, I could talk about the psychological, spiritual dimensions for a while, but just to keep it kind of short, um, 
it is, uh, it's a lot um, to be carrying around, uh, uh, you know, beautiful baby and growth. Um, and uh, all the, the weight of that is hard on the body. Um, my blood volume is uh, about one and a half times that uh, what it normally is. Um, and uh, I have this hormone flooding through my body called relaxin, which is intentionally relaxing all my ligaments um, and fascia just to create space for what's happening. And uh, that starts early in pregnancy and just continues until the end uh, and truly can allow your body to um, reorient itself to allow for this entire process to take place. So needless to say, having loose joints with, um, you know, just an overall greater strain um, and a relocalization of where uh, most of the gravity is, <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a challenge. And um, so when I get into the float tank, I'm able to lay on my back comfortably for the first time um, in months or, you know, for the only time in months. Um, because uh, pregnant women, um, when the baby gets big enough, when the uh, belly and uterus get big enough, um, it can uh, put pressure on uh, the blood vessel that returns uh, blood to the heart and just makes you feel really crummy. It's like, oh my God, get me off my back. Um, some people experience this, others don't. But anyway, um, in the float tank, there's enough support and I, I'm able to just float on my back and then uh, with the support of different uh, uh, flotation devices like neck pillow, pool noodle, I can be on my side. Um, it's just really relieving um, for all of that physical discomfort. And uh, man, then I'm able to sleep better. Um, just this last week, um, I hopped in the float tank and I hadn't been in for almost three weeks. And I'm really upset at myself for having done that because I think that was a, that was not a good idea. <laughs> just, you know, time, not taking care of myself, um, things like that. Just that's what happened. Um, but the day after that, um, I was able to go hiking with Dylan for miles in the forest, which was completely, um, inaccessible to me because, um, of the physical effects of pregnancy. And, um, and then the next night after that, or that night, I slept through the entire night and woke up in the morning just like, what happened? Um, so I'm astounded. Um, I'm really grateful. Uh, and, and it helps, of course. I'll just note at this point, Sandra's up several, many times uh, a night to, to <laughs> the restroom. So yeah, that's for her yep. sleeping through the entire night. That That's honestly crazy. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I'd love to just, you know, get into this deep sometime. I think that um, a few months from now, when all is said and done, perhaps uh, we can do a longer episode on this or um, I'll write something up or something uh, for the community um, because it's really, it's really something. Um, I want to stand on the rooftops and yell about it. So good. And I know she's not digging into it right now, but I think there are some really amazing connection moments with with the baby and i think argue, you could argue that there's some pretty spiritual stuff that occurs with uh being in that that womb within a womb situation pretty pretty incredible thank you absolutely thank you, sandra and 
Yeah. Um, let's see here. So I want to jump into Justin's talk. Uh, and, you know, but before we do that, um, it's so funny. Sandra just talked about uh, being pregnant, becoming a mom. And oh. I want to hear a little bit more about your scientific background or your, or your medical background. Can you just let everybody know where you're coming from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so <laughs> before we jump into that real quick, I'll, I'd like to say one of the other things that <laughs> I'm finding to be very true about pregnancy yeah. is that language <laughs> is a funny thing now. A lot of times I'll say things that just don't make any sense and Dylan will look at me sideways and I'll say, oh, forget it. I don't know. So if that happens, then forgive me. <laughs> um, so I've been a nurse since 2008. Um, and uh, right away uh, when I, I got my um, registered nursing license, um, I went to work in, ironically, the float pool at um, our one of our big hospitals here. So uh, the medical surgical float pool takes um, uh, allows nurses to go basically wherever they're needed in the hospital. So I got the opportunity right off the bat to be in all kinds of fields from perioperative to um, neurology, uh, cardiology, a little bit of oncology, um, general medicine. And that was a tremendously valuable experience while I finished my master's degree. Um, which was over the next couple of years. And uh, during that work, I focused a lot on the veteran population um, where I was in the emergency department for my, um, my big master's project and uh, also you know, on other floors like psychiatry and uh, medical oncology. Um, as soon as I finished my master's, um, I went to work as uh, adjunct faculty for the nursing school uh, taking nursing students through uh, their psychiatric nursing rotation. Um, and I also did some uh, medical surgical nursing as well, um, which was uh, an incredible experience. Um, I'd take these brand new nursing students uh, with, you know, really bright eyes. And sometimes this was their very first experience. And they would walk with me into uh, the VA's inpatient psych unit. And we'd go from there. Um, and that took me to a lot of different places around Portland. It was uh, incredible to um, do this for a couple of years. And it's in that time that we decided to open the float shop. And so I got a second job um, and I went to work as a, a bedside nurse in cardiology and did that for a couple of years as well. Um, so um, my, my nursing career has, um, has really given me a lot of uh, opportunity um, uh, a lot of different settings for learning and, uh, it's been awesome. And then before that, I had a little bit of experience in research, um, really just, um, in biology research labs at my undergrad school. So speaking of research, can you, um, bring us a little bit to giving us some background as far as LIBOR goes and, and Justin with LIBOR? Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Justin Feinstein is, uh, as you all know, just the greatest gift to the float community. I am so glad he's here doing the research he's doing and the way he's doing it. Um, my God. So Justin uh, came to uh, the Laurie Institute for Brain Research from Caltech three years ago um, after uh, having a conversation with uh, the people who run LIBOR in which they said, okay, 
um, we will build you a float clinic and research center. We'll build you a state-of-the-art place or, you know, more like he'll, he'll build it with Colin, but, you know, we'll fund it. We'll let this happen. And uh, um, off he went. Um, Dr. Feinstein's been, uh, he has, uh, you know, many published papers out there. You can go take a look and um, his work is uh, primarily surrounds anxiety. And uh, what Libra's main goal is to reduce the suffering for those with mental illness. And as Justin says during his speech, he, he finds that this is, um, that they are open to alternative treatment, alternative research. And I think that's really cool. I mean, there's, um, there, there's plenty of research going out there to um, more mainstream styles of wellness. And it, the Warren family who's funding this, uh, Liber, um, is willing to look at, are there any other ways that we're not looking at here? And um, Justin was able to present them with, with floating and, and yet funding, which is really exciting. Yeah, I think it's incredible. Justin has been effective in not only talking library into this, but also um, welcoming uh, excellent uh, researchers to join him um, who left their lives in other places. Like Dr. Pan Lin just came over from China. Right. He left everything behind to um, research floating and its use um, for in reducing suffering for people with mental illness. So um, it, it's just so exciting. <laughs> I feel like it's less him convincing people and more uh, people are just attracted to this and to him. I think uh, he's a great, I don't know, spokesman is the right word, but mouthpiece for floating. Um, and also uh, floating in itself, I think, is, is just attracting people into this as well. So it's a really, really cool one, too. So we're going to walk through everything um, that or at least most of what Justin talked about during his speech and we're basically going to break it down we might present it in a little bit of a different order if you want to listen to the speech before or after this i think either way work, uh, makes a lot of sense um, our way i think is going to be broken down into the best way that we can to kind of um, get it into your brain so that you're able to talk to clients about this understand it yourself and just whatever you don't have to have a master's in nursing to to understand what's going on with this float research and so um, we're really just going to break it down so that we understand some of the the medical um, like brain activity that's going on, the implications of what that uh, the research um, means to us, and what that means to in talking with your clients and all of that. So um, I think uh, first, and and I'll just <laughs> I'll be handing it off to Sandra a lot here. This is nice tonight. <laughs> um, the uh, and and I know we've gone over this in, in episodes in the past. And uh, would you just give a real basic uh, overview of Liber of the setup they have? There? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, Liber itself has, um, you know, multiple doctoral researchers there. And then Justin's lab in particular, uh, the Float Clinic and Research Center, has um, two float pools. One of them's an open style and the other one's closed, as well as a float chair, um, which is used as the variable, excuse me, is the control in these experiments. Um, so the float chair allows them to as closely approximate the um, uh, reduction of sensory stimuli um, as, as possible, aside from being, you know, a float tank specifically. Um, so it's really brilliant, great, as good as you can get kind of control. Um, and uh, right down the hall, they have a functional MRI machine, uh, which is just an incredible boon to this research. Um, fMRIs are not only tremendously expensive, but, um, you know, it's, it's recent high-tech 
and it's what allows the researchers to take a look at what is happening in the brain, um, you know, before and after floats. And, you know, maybe this is too basic, maybe it's not, but what exactly is an MRI machine and what they have there is an fMRI machine? What, what's the difference between the two and what are they, what are they showing? Sure. Uh, an MRI uh, machine, MRI stands for Magnetic Resonance Imaging. Okay. And what this is, um, is a phenomenal machine which can tell us about the anatomical structure um, of something like the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main difference uh, between an MRI and an fMRI is that an fMRI or functional MRI allows you to take a look at what's happening um, over time in terms of the cellular activity. Um, so if I can interrupt you, you can tell me if I'm completely wrong here or not, but an MRI machine is going to be a still picture and fMRI machine is going to be more like a video? Essentially, yes. <laughs> tell um, me where I'm wrong. <laughs> without, without getting too complicated. So um, <laughs> in an MRI, they're looking at the, uh, you know, these subtle variations in the spin of the uh, nucleus of uh, water molecules, and it's just a, a single sort of you know snapshot of the of the the structure itself, like you said. Um, whereas in fMRI, it's more about the oxygen, which allows them to watch uh, you know essentially like oxygen consumption okay. um, by the cells over time. So um, an fMRI measures oxygen changes with respect to time, whereas an MRI measures the relation of the physical structures. Um, so yeah, it's basically... So as a layman's, what am I seeing different? Um, in, in one, it's more like a picture. In the other, it's more like a video of the uh, <laughs> metabolic uh, changes that are happening in the cell. Okay. Or the which, activity. Which one does LIBOR have? Uh, LIBOR has an fMRI. So we get to watch a video of the activity of these cells in the brain. Interesting. Okay, I awesome. think it's starting to coalesce in my little brain here. Okay. So basically it's exactly what you said, Dylan. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and so I'm no I, expert in that, so I'm sure I just got something sure. totally wrong, but that's basically Understood. It. Understood. So um, we had our first fMRI study regarding floating, yes? Yes. This is Can you really tell us about that? Stuff. Yes, absolutely. So in this, the first um Floating and fMRI study, um, uh, they took 40 participants uh, who were healthy adults aged between 18 and 52 with an average age around 30. There were slightly more females than males, and all of them were healthy. So uh, nobody had a psychiatric history, and there was no drug use. They were then randomized to either the pool group or the chair group. So each of these groups had 20 participants. So 20 of them are going to go float in the float pool, and 20 of them are going to, quote-unquote, float in the float chair. Um, so I'll just refer, it to, refer to it as pool or chair from here forward. I hope that doesn't get confusing. That's great. And I, maybe they, I think they refer to it as wet and dry floating at, the, at LIBOR. Is that correct? I maybe. think I've heard him say that. Um, I, I think it was pool, yeah. or, pool or chair, I believe. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it was more pool or chair in the, uh, in the presentation. Um, okay. Okay. Perfect. So as far as the pool and chair goes, actually, this is stepping back a little bit, but the, um, 
the control group of the chair. Why is it important to have a control group? I what I think is it's like you got to have the placebo. You have to have somebody who's having who you know may, thinks they're having the treatment, but do they actually have me- measurable results uh, that are that are different or not? Is that is it similar to the placebo? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in in clinical research, you know, you can you can say, oh, look at what happens when people come out of a float tank. But if you don't have anything to compare that to, then you have significantly less information to tell someone about. Um, And uh, so uh, having the chair allows them to create um, create that baseline. So they can say, essentially, that floating does more than if you're just doing some other relaxing activity, like relaxing in a chair at home or relaxing in a chair in a different sensory limited environment. Right. Okay. Okay, cool. And then, so stepping forward to the... Um, Going to... back, just to, just to like add oh, a little bit to the, the yeah, whole control, exactly. Uh, exactly what you said, the placebo. So um, the way that they set this up with either the float pool or the float chair allowed them to say to all the participants essentially the same thing. So um, everybody would have a float. Um, and whether they were randomized to the pool group or the chair group, they would still say the same thing. And they could say, we're going, we would like to, um, you know, see what the effect is of, uh, uh, um, we want to, we want to know what the effect on your brain is of a sensory reduced environment. And so both of them, both the chair and the pool offered that. Interesting. That's cool. And then, so you, you said that these are, um, healthy. Uh, adults. So we don't have people suffering from anxiety in this group, even though that's kind of what Justin's interested in. Why do we want the to get the information on healthy people first? Why it's, not just jump into people with anxiety? It's another uh, way to establish that sort of baseline. So in a broader research perspective, um, it's important to uh, work with healthy people first before you introduce this therapy um, to uh, a population that, uh, you know, is... Uh, has, has a psychiatric condition or, or otherwise. Um, and it's also uh, an issue of responsibility um, so that you can, you can say in healthy people, this is what happens. And then you can, take, you can take that information and ensure that you have safe procedures for welcoming the next group in who, nice. who may have more challenges. Cool. Okay, please take, take it away. So um, they're doing the pool or they're doing the chair for weeks on end. <laughs> <laughs> So first, what they did um, to answer the question of you know, what happens uh, with the brain in a healthy population before and after a series of floats, first, they had everybody do an fMRI. That was a 90-minute uh, look at their brain. Then uh, they did three floats in either the pool or the chair over the course of several weeks. And after that, they did another fMRI. So that gives you cool. uh, an fMRI to look at before the floats and after the floats and ways to compare them. That's awesome. Another thing I is mean, that... Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know everything's so cool. I don't want to say stop after everything you say, but that's huge in itself, right? Just the fact that we're taking, whether you want to call it a picture, a little video, snapshot, whatever it is, the fact that we're looking at the brain like in just the normal and then immediately after a float, I'm guessing that hasn't happened before, not to my knowledge, like... This, it's absolutely just that incredible. In is a big deal. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. Um, Justin, no, gloss over that. <laughs> in his, yeah, no way. This is a huge opportunity for the float community. Um, um, 
a, a huge, not an opportunity, but you know, it's, it's a gift. We're all wondering about all these things and what's really happening. And here we have a state of the art, uh, clinical research lab where all of this is being done it, right in front of our eyes. I can barely contain right. my excitement about it. <laughs> That's awesome. So please, I, um, please continue. So they're, they're each floating wet or dry or chair or, or pool. Yeah, and uh, they also complete a questionnaire which asks them about their subjective experience. So um, there were uh, self-reported measures of anxiety, of how pleasant the float experience was, uh, their feelings of serenity, uh, among other things. And and we'll we'll hit those points again later. Okay. Serenity now. So what were the what were the results (laughs) of the, the questionnaire after their floats? Um, so one of the things that was really interesting about these results from the questionnaire is that they essentially said something different than, uh, another study, uh, that was recently published oh, about funny. how comfortable stuff. people are doing nothing. <laughs> and essentially the other study said, people hate this. They don't want to do nothing. They'd it rather sucks, shock themselves. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, some and instances, some instances. You know, Justin <laughs> talked about this in his talk. You'll have to watch it. It's great. Um, so in, uh, in Liber's study, uh, when asked if the experience was extremely pleasant uh, to extremely unpleasant, everyone uh, but one of the chair floaters said that the experience was at least mildly uh, pleasurable, ranging to extremely pleasurable. So they found that their participants were enjoying this process of doing nothing. And I know this isn't extremely important, but why do you think that is? Why do you think previous studies said it was basically torturous to be alone with your thoughts and and people were finding this to be pleasant? I don't know. I think that's a great uh, question. Um, We really don't know. I mean, it could be all kinds of things, little things about the environment. You know, were people just put in a Mm. bright white room with nothing? I think he... I was going to say, I think he talked about the environment. He, he said he got to talk to the, one of the gentlemen who ran the other experiment and he was saying, yeah, it was in a basement of a, of a building and it was very, you know, kind of dark and scary. So, you know, you do have to wonder if the environment had, what, what kind of effect the environment had on that study, which would be interesting. I think that's, uh, that's a nice message to us float facilitators mm. <laughs> of how we present our environment. Lance is obviously on top of it, but like just how we're making it comfortable for our people and making sure that being <laughs> alone for 90 minutes is something that they want to be in and feel comfortable in and they'd let their guards down. And I mean, at least, sorry, I know we're trying to keep it all research-based. That's how I interpret that, uh, that portion of it. Um, so I think that's really cool that people are reporting that. And can we go again real quick to the difference between, um, just break it down, how did people respond to chair? How did people respond to float? Like, give me two words, uh, With four that, words, you know, real, real quick. People like the float pool more than they like the float chair. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, in and, general, people found the, the float experience more pleasant. And would, and okay. Yeah. And like markedly more, uh, more pleasant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go on to the medical side, like um, things that we're seeing with the fMRI machine. Oh, please. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, there were a couple other aspects of the questionnaire uh, that I think oh, we should please. talk about. And that's I'm that, sorry, yeah. um, that uh, people 
reported uh, the sense of serenity, which uh, Lance uh, mentioned earlier in the podcast. Um, and, uh, you know, after floating, they'd say that they had this sense of serenity, more so in the float pool than in the chair. And, uh, uh, you know, another, another measure was anxiety. Um, and uh, do you guys want to say something about serenity? Serenity okay. now. That's all I know to say when I hear serenity. It's the only thing that goes through my head. Um, and uh, let's see. Um, so uh, also anxiety uh, decreased more so in the pool than the chair um, afterwards. So, um, you know, having this, no, seeing that people were reporting that they were feeling less anxious or stressed after the float uh, in the pool, um, uh, is, is really important and, and that'll come up again. Um, but I think it's important to note here again that these are healthy participants without an anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. And so um, this will look different in a clinical population who would be uh, beginning with a higher level of anxiety, presumably. Sure. So that'd be really interesting to see what those results look like. Um, and I, I don't want to harp on it too much, but it, I do, and, and feel free to correct me or, or, you know, scoop me into the right category here, but it seems like the float has really, uh, I, I think, um, and maybe you can help me with this, but, you know, sometimes, uh, two graphs can be close, but one is, one is higher, but it's not markedly different. It's not of note. And, and then another graph could be so far, it's like that is statistically worthy of noting. Um, I, I can't remember the exact term of that, but, um, like, uh, the, the floats were, were highly, um, you know, their level of anxiety was a lot lower. Their level of serenity was a lot higher as opposed to in the chair where um, it was a lot closer to the, the pre-float. Uh, is that correct? That is correct. And, you know, he in his talk, in the video that you could see at floatconference.com, you can see these graphs. <laughs> and so, you know, we'd have to, it's funny, how do you characterize the word ex- extremely or you know, I think that um, with some of the uh, brain imaging, uh, the just purely the way that the graph looked was much more um, uh, significant. Um, but still, you know, there was a clinically uh, significant uh, and uh, statistically significant decrease in anxiety. Um, statistically significant. Cool. Yes. So, um layman's, I used that term earlier, from layman's perspective, just somebody reporting higher serenity, lower anxiety, all of that, that means a lot to me. I think that's really cool. I think the the next section that we're going to get into is um, equally as cool, if not cooler, and the fact that the two combine is is fantastic. And we do get into a little bit more science, so I just want to go over a little vocabulary before we get into that. And um, if I want to talk about the... Um, the salience network and what makes up the salience network. And before uh, people start tuning out <laughs> because of these big words that are going to come <laughs> flying at you, as I oftentimes do, just know there are only a couple words here. And um, they're really important to this whole float thing that we're doing here. And they seem to have some um, really big uh, impacts on what the float does to our brain. So I, I really hope you, you tune in for this part. Um, Sandra, what makes up the salience network? Yes. Just like Dylan said, really, all you need is essentially the salience network. Um, This is composed of uh, two particular areas of the brain, um, the uh, right anterior insula and the dorsal anterior cingulate. And just to break down these words, um, most of of what all these syllables are composed of is just 
purely a directional term. Um, you know, anterior means towards the front. Uh, dorsal uh, means uh, towards the, the back, but in a way um, where you can also involve like the top of your head. Um, so just like a dorsal fin, you know, dorsal and ventral are opposites of each other. So you can just kind of let go of some of that, uh, uh, the tenseness of, of uh, all these syllables. And uh, we'll, we'll just try to uh, refer to the um, salience network instead of the actual uh, areas. Good, good call. Good call on that one. If we're talking, <laughs> if we're talking to customers, probably don't need to mention the right anterior insula or the dorsal anterior cingulate. You see people However, glaze the right network over. rolls off the tongue a little bit easier and pro probably it's, it's really, it's the collective, it's the network itself that's important. So what is, the, what is the salience network and what does that mean in regards to this, uh, this research? So this is the, um, the, the uh, areas of the brain that help the brain to determine what of all the incoming stimuli are important in that moment. Uh, so this is internal, external, uh, everything coming in. What do I actually have to pay attention to? So we have uh, billions of bits of information coming at us in any, any given moment. We say we have five senses, but really we have far more than five senses coming at us at any given moment. Our brain, we wouldn't know what to do if, if we had if we're processing all of it at the same time. So are you saying the salience network is kind of what filters out all the noise and lets us know this bit is important and that bit's important? Yes, that is the idea. And uh, Justin cites a study from 2007, uh, which found that connectivity between these two areas correlates with how anxious the participants were. So not only is this area something that helps us determine what's important, but when connectivity is uh, increased when there's a lot of connectivity between um, the right anterior insula and the dorsal anterior cingulate or the salience network within the salience network, um, then uh, that is associated with uh, anxiety. Interesting. Okay. So that kind of brings it home to what Justin is looking for or interested in. Yeah. So I, I'm assuming, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the next question is how do these reasons change uh, regions change pre and post float. Is that exactly? Is that right? okay. Yeah. So, given um, a, an fMRI of a brain before a float and a brain after float, they're able to uh, target a region of interest to look at. You know, how is this region communicating um, with this other region? So, how is the function between these two areas? Um, uh, how does that look after floating versus before floating? And this is so cool, so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the results? Wow. So there was a significant decrease in connectivity after floating in the pool, whereas in the chair, there was a slight increase. So, man, and this was not just any small effect. This was um, significant. Uh, and it wasn't just statistically significant, certainly statistically significant. Yeah. <laughs> do you all remember sitting in the audience when he put this slide up? I do. And I'm looking it up right now, actually. So we we're all in the audience. So, you know, there's 700 of us sitting in the audience and we're so excited about this research. He puts up this slide that shows an incredible decrease in connectivity between these regions for people in the uh, pool floating group versus the chair floating group, where 
whereas the chair had a slight increase in this connectivity, there was a big decrease in those who were floating in the pool. So really clear right away that there was uh, not just a small effect, but something really uh, of note, something that, you know, made all of our ears perk up and, and say, well, what's going on here? And um, I'm sure the, the, the same the same is true for any brain researcher. And, and so I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, Sandra, but from us, from the outside, and maybe from Justin, maybe you could infer a little bit, but um, what assumptions could we start to build based off of this? And not, not to say this is what we should be telling clients is a fact, but as far as the research goes, what does this imply for further research? So this implies that there is something considerable going on in the brain that is unique to the float experience, uh, to the uh, pool float experience um, in relation to areas of the brain that have to do with anxiety even in people who, um, uh, you know, don't have an anxiety disorder of any kind, just normal day-to-day kind of stress. And this is supported by the fact that in the questionnaire, um, people cited a reduction in anxiety. And when they went along and they looked person to person, the degree of connectivity change um, in this area of the brain, these areas of the brain, correlated to their self-reported degree of anxiety which meant that the more anxiety reduction, the greater the reduction in connectivity between these two regions in the brain from before to after. So if Lance goes in for a float, not only does he report that he's feeling better, that he has a higher sense of serenity or lower anxiety, but his brain scans are also showing that they're supporting that because the salience network is running at a lower, lower pace. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So, you know, not only is he saying, man, I feel, I feel better. I feel more serene. I feel less anxious. Um, but there is something actually happening, um, in the brain, um, that, uh, is just going to support the idea of continuing this research, um, towards clinical population. Awesome. Um, is there anything else that you want to share about, about that or? Yeah. So um, another uh, interesting point that Justin made uh, during his uh, during his speech was that um, a study that he and his colleagues did in 2006, as well as another study in 07, um, showed a similar decrease in activity between these two regions, resulting from uh, benzodiazepine drugs. So uh, these are drugs like uh, lorazepam, Xanax anything that's like a PAM, uh, you know, the generic name is uh, of this class. Um, And they all have, uh, you know, a very important role in current psychiatric treatment of anxiety. Um, They're commonly used, and they also have a very high addiction and abuse potential. So essentially, floating could be an alternative. And, you know, this is reaching, and this is where I start to feel really out of my comfort zone. Right. Um, <laughs> so I guess this is where we do mention like these, re- these, this research isn't published yet. Uh, I don't think we can just go start screaming and publicly saying that this is a fact or that we can, you know, you can replace your, your drugs with floating, uh, exactly. right. Uh, that we Mm-mm. cannot do that. We yeah. absolutely cannot do that. What we can do is be excited about those results, see yes. the implications and what look forward to more research. Right. Yeah. But, this but research is definitely... going to be published. Um, they're, they're now submitting this uh, information right. to, uh, for publication. 
and then uh, the whole the whole process of research becoming known um, and um, and then validated um, and uh, continued. You know, essentially, there this this needs more study. They need to have more participants before we can say this is something that's really happening. Um, before we can say to our clients, this is what's known uh, about floating's effect on anxiety. Um, but we do have a lot of other research that also supports us in, in saying that. So, um, you know, it, it is a little, we're entering a gray area, which is a really happy place to be. And I think that some people would say that there's no gray to this area at all, that we can say, you know, floating reduces anxiety. Um, uh, um, but nonetheless, you know. Well, I think I was but benzodiazepine. That, that's where we, we can, I don't think we could say we could replace benzodiazepine. But, no way. <laughs> But what we did see was that yeah, <laughs> uh, it has s- the same or similar effects to the salience network. And as far as we know, as business owners, there's not addiction to floating, um, or at least not uh, what they see with benzodiazepine. Is that, is that correct? Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's essentially just a cause for a great amount of excitement and mm-hmm. uh, a challenge to kind of still hold our horses a bit, you know, right. like, okay, wait till it's published. Um, and one of the other really incredible things about this is, um, you know, it's sort of, um, in a way, in his talk, uh, Justin really buried the lead, um, you know, coming from a so media funny. family, um, you know, both my parents <laughs> are news people, so they always say, oh my God, you buried the lead! Uh, like, the this is such a big deal um, because increasingly the salience network is, is uh, being examined in the, um, in the research community as um, potentially something that has a lot to do with not just anxiety, yet, but a lot of uh, different mental illnesses. Um, Justin talks about a study published uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, and I'm going to have to double check that, uh, uh, make sure I got JAMA correct. Um, but they recently said that in a study of 16,000 people, um, it was a meta-analysis, they took other people's data, uh, that this one area of the brain was identified as um, the one in which changes were perceived across all kinds of different mental illnesses. So this is schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, anxiety disorders, um, et cetera, which is... Which area is this? I'm sorry. That is the salience network. We're still talking about the salience network. We are, yeah. So the title of that article says it all. Um, And (laughs) that is uh, a a common neurobiological substrate for mental illness. Um, So, you know... One of the really challenging things about working with people with mental illness is that um, the diagnostic criteria are vague. It's not like you take a blood level. Um, it's that people experience a series of symptoms. And um, if there is an area of the brain that is implicated in, um, as a culprit um, in a lot of mental illnesses, and we have a way to target it, wow, that's a big deal. And floating has an effect on that part of the brain. Yeah. The importance of this cannot be <laughs> understood. Can't be understated. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, Dr. Kyle Simmons is also doing some some uh, work. He's uh, he's describing 
this area of the brain as, as the one which anticipates the future state of the body. Like, where will I be and how will I feel in a moment other than this one? Um, and so it's sort of connected with the idea that people with anxiety are constantly living in a future state. Um, and uh, we'll put up a link to Kyle's uh, uh, study and description of this, too. So you can you can read further. And uh, I think this all leads into Pan Lin's speech as well, which is really interesting. And, uh, you know, actually, I think we should toot our own horns here a little bit, Sandra, because uh, Dr. Kyle Simmons actually floated for the first time at the float shop. And I yeah. think that is where he had his convincing moment. Oh, there, <laughs> there is something to this, this little thing here. I still remember seeing him come out and he just had that big old grin on his face. <laughs> it's like, oh no, <laughs> Justin was waiting for him. And yeah, I, like, I have to say, even, even beforehand, he's a very smiley person. Dr. Carlson is a very sweet man. But yeah, he, he had that post float glow, big smile. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but before we move on to Pendlin, I want to give a shout out to the float conference. None of this uh, would have been able to be presented in such an amazing professional way, let alone uh, filmed the way that it was and put out onto YouTube the way it was if it weren't for the float conference. So thank you so much to the float conference. If you want to um, watch uh, the the um, Dr. Feinstein's presentation, um, it's on YouTube. Uh, you can check it out at artofthefloat.com or go to www.floatconference.com to check that out. That's also where if you want to um, sign up for any future um, float conference, that's that's where you want to go, floatconference.com. Also, um, if you sign up for the email blasts uh, or, you know, follow them on, on Twitter, all that stuff, uh, you can find out uh, when the latest videos are being posted because Justin's is up there, but uh, they're going to continue throughout the rest of the year and, and probably beyond, um, release everybody's videos from the Flow Conference. And um, gosh, how lucky are we to be able to reference these things and uh, for those of us who weren't able to make it, be able to watch those. So gosh, thanks, Flow Conference. <laughs> thanks to... Everybody who hosts that puts that on. Thank you so much. So um, moving on to Pan Lin, and, and um, this was, uh, I, I feel like, just as amazing as Justin's was. Uh, I thought Pan Lin's uh, presentation um, leads us to some really incredible things as well. Um, I think I'll... <laughs> there, there's the term I love the most, which is default mode network. And um, that's, that's really what it was all about, the effect of floating on the brain's default mode network. So, Sandra, please... Uh, Take it away. So uh, Dr. Pan Lin uh, joined us at the float conference just about three weeks after he flew in from China, moving his entire life to LIBOR to do this research on floating. Um, and, uh, you know, he's here because he sees this might be a viable treatment option, too. Um, and, uh, man, we're so lucky to have him. And uh, what he talked to us about was... Um, the question of what happens to the brain at rest uh, and during floating and after. Um, and he was analyzing a, a different part of the brain, a different uh, network. Um, and bear with me. Again, this is mostly directional terms. Um, the default mode network consists of the posterior cingulate cortex, the medial prefrontal cortex, the inferior parietal, parietal lobe, <clears throat> and the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex. Um, and you can just forget all that for a second. Um, I'll bring it up again uh, a, a little bit. <laughs> several portions of the brain uh, communicating to each other. They're, they're firing off to each other. Something called the default mode network. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, and uh, so the 
uh, taking one of those as sort of like the, the main one that the other ones communicate with, um, uh, Dr. Lin described uh, the connectivity of the medial prefrontal cortex, that was one of the four things that um, make up the default mode network, with the other three areas. So um, this uh, area of the brain, the, the function um, is uh, essentially the mind-wandering sort of thinking about the past and future, what's my to-do list, what was yesterday like, sort of time travel, internal mind chatter about the self, um, you know, kind of the autobiographical memory. Um, and uh, it's been identified that... Before... <laughs> I'm getting you off. I just want to make sure I, <laughs> I understand this correctly, which is that the um, default mode network is important for daydreaming, spacing off, but it's not zen. It's not when you're catching a baseball. It's not when you're playing a basketball game. It's like, it's an important thing that we have. It's important to be in imaginary land and, and to space off or think about the past or the future, but it's not Zen in the moment. Is, is that a fair yeah. assessment? Yeah, I, I, I think so. You know, the, the, the state of consciousness as you're just relaxing and doing nothing and your, your brain is just doing whatever it is, is naturally going to, you know, ebb and flow between these different things. Um, and, uh, sometimes you can experience that sort of timelessness of, um, you know, engagement in the activity that you're in. And, you know, that's not this state. This is not flow. This is just mm, right. okay. hanging out, minds wandering. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, please continue. I apologize for cutting you off. You can cut me off. It's great. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> So uh, hyperconnectivity uh, in the default mode network um, is associated with mental illness-like depression. So this is another area where they want to say, um, you know, perhaps does floating decrease uh, activity in the default mode network? Um, people with depression, associated with depression, the default mode network is going too much. It's on too often. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So again, you know, they had uh, 40 healthy participants randomized to 20 in the float uh, pool and 20 in the float chair, the same kind of setup. Um, they did a pre-float fMRI and then three floats over several weeks and, uh, and then a post-float fMRI. And the results were, again, quite notable. Um, so looking at the connectivity, uh, uh, well, far more significant in the uh, uh, floating pool than in the chair. Statistically significant. <laughs> yes. Okay. I, I think it's important, right? It's important. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's statistical significance, which means um, this effect that we're seeing, uh, you know, essentially breaks down with the numbers. You know, you identify um, this particular... Um, I'm going to get the words wrong because it's, I'm out of statistics for a while, but, you know, you're looking at, an, at a particular effect and what's the size of that effect and what, um, you know, how sure are you that that effect is what you're seeing, essentially. And, um, and I think that's why I keep bringing it up is because I feel like any um, research I've ever seen or anything with statistics, they will, they will use that phrase because I'll be looking at the graph and I'll go, look, there's a difference there, but they'll be saying that's not statistically significant. And I won't necessarily know why that's the case, but it means a lot to them and they, they understand why. But with, in regards to floating, it is statistically significant. It's, it's a big change. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and and that's where you'll see in in research they'll uh, they'll cite the p value. Um, you know, they'll they'll say uh, p is less than 0. 0.001. Um, and it's essentially it's that's a number that they choose um, based on um, um, based on various factors in uh, in their research, um, and it and it has to do with you know what's the what's the probability that you're going to get a result uh, that is what you think you got <laughs> could just randomly happen anyway. Just. Mm -hmm. uh... Right. Okay. I don't mean to, I don't mean to digress too much. Please. It's please important. Continue. It's great. Um, uh, let's see. So, um, so taking a look at uh, the connectivity between the medial prefrontal cortex and these other three areas of the brain, making up the default mode network, um, they found that the uh, connectivity decreased um, in all but two uh, of twenty in the pool group and increased in all but six of 20 in the chair group. So um, a really notable change in, um, in the activity in these areas of the brain. Um, can, I, can I interrupt one more time? Yeah. Oh, wait, I say one more time. I'm, I'm sure we interrupted <laughs> 10 more times. When, when, now, so when, when, I, <laughs> when I hear that, I think as the float center owner, I want to believe that a float tank is more impactful than sitting in your room by yourself or sitting in a zero G chair. There's something special to this particular environment that we've created. And maybe we're not done. You know, maybe there's more that could, that could be built into this system and, and we need to look into that. That's great. But as, as a center owner, that feels awesome to know that there are people in a very quiet, either no light or dimly lit room in a zero G chair. And the numbers are, uh, almost <laughs> negative in, in the, um, or, or I guess there's increased uh, notability of the default mode network in the zero gravity chair, but in the float pool, there's a, <laughs> um, I'll use it one more time, statistically significant <laughs> drop in the use of the default mode network. That's tremendous to me. And that's tremendous to me as a business owner, when I'm talking to clients and you're talking about, um, there's a, there's a million different practices out there and, they're on the on the brink of like hard Western science to extreme woo woo, and to be able to take something that sounds kind kind of woo woo y to be quite frank. And if you've ever seen um, strangers on on Facebook posting about any news article about it, you'll see that all over the place. But to be able to actually say there are measured results because of this specific environment is awesome to me. So. Um, Absolutely. That's all I wanted to say about that. Yeah, for the for the client who comes in and says, "How about I just go lay in bed at home, uh, or I'm yeah, just going to go put a cup of Epsom salt in my bath, <laughs> or, or put oh, that's what God. I was going to say, Epsom salt I in the should, bathtub." After five years of running a flow center, have mellowed now. out about that one, but that still just drives me bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, me too. Um, uh, please continue. <laughs> So uh, similarly to uh, uh, the, uh, the study about the salience network um, that we just talked about, uh, they had a questionnaire. And um, so there was a increase in serenity um, in the uh, pool participants as well. So it was uh, just as a total summary um, of this study, the default no mode network uh, showed a significant decrease in functional connectivity um, 
with its primary hub in the medial prefrontal cortex after floating. Uh, and that was only evident in the pool group. And it was associated with an increase in serenity. I love it. And that, and that seems to couple with, with Justin's research as well. Yeah. So, you know, we're seeing in both of these areas of the brain, um, both of these areas are um, implicated in uh, uncomfortable, uh, you know, conditions such as depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Um, And so uh, we're seeing that there are significant changes um, both on brain scans as well as uh, in the words of the people who experienced the floats themselves. Um, And it, it, it just means really good things for continuing this research and moving it into clinical trials, clinical research with, uh, with populations who um, are not healthy. That's so cool. And so um, what does this mean for the future of, I guess, LIBOR and just float, float research in, in general? It means there's something here. And uh, cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, not that mm-hmm. we're just saying it now, you know, now it can be demonstrated. They have yeah. the data and they're building more data all anecdotal. the time. Yes. It's not just, you know, all of us saying this is awesome. It's, um, it's the right kind of research do- done perfectly and, um, by the right people. And, uh, you know, they'll get it out in journals. Um, and, uh, we, you know, we'll just be, be keeping our fingers crossed for them. And, and Sam, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and Sandra, does this also mean that as far as funding goes, that we can have um, some uh, confidence that getting money for funding for more uh, research is going to be a little bit easier with these under the belt? Yes. Yeah, absolutely, Amy. So, um, you know, the um, the process of, of getting grants um, and being funded for medical research in the U.S., requires an incredible amount of rigor and attention and work. And so all of this will um, go towards uh, what they're able to accomplish in terms of um, being funded um, for ongoing research. Very cool. Very exciting. And, and of, oh. Go ahead, Dylan. Speaking of research, it's somewhat in the similar vein. Um, can we talk about what a peer-reviewed journal is, or I'm sorry, peer-reviewed study is, um, and and what the significance of that is? Yes. So um, the the research community, um, essentially the structure works more or less like this. There are numerous research labs. They're funded usually um, by a combination of government grants and universities and uh, private funding sometimes and, you know, I don't know exactly what the scenario is at LIBOR, but I know that the Warren family has given tremendously to this research. Um, And uh, from those labs, research is produced. Um, And that research is uh, written out into a journal format, uh, which is sent in to a large journal. You know, these journals, they're numerous and they're really um, big names uh, like JAMA, you know, the Journal of the American Medical Association, Um, uh, you know, other ones that, you know, Nature, Science, these huge journals. Um, And uh, before that uh, article is published, it has to meet a certain set of criteria, which have been identified by the scientific community as essential for ensuring that the research is uh, rigorous and that 
um, you know, it's really well done and that they're actually measuring the thing that they're measured. Does that have a name? Um, I mean, like, I feel like, like a research had to have a particular follow particular guidelines. I feel like it has a name. Oh yeah. I, I know what you're, you're talking about the, um, the IRB process. Yes. yes. So, um, that's one of the aspects of and what is um, IRB? this peer review process. IRB, uh, stands for institutional review board. Um, and the institutional review board is, uh, the, the body that ensures that you're adhering to everything you need to do in order to protect the people that you're studying. Oh, okay. So this, um, you know, stemming from the history of research in the U.S., um, you know, way back uh, there were some studies that were done that were really unethical. Um, I think a lot of people know about, um, you know, the study in which people were asked to um, hurt another person. And there was an actor on the other side of the screen, and that actor would be wailing that um, an authoritative person would say, hey, or would say, um, increase, increase the dose of this shock. And uh, what they were studying is whether or not people would do it. Um, so this was an example of um, really awful research practices and the reason why an IRB is needed um, to ensure that researchers are protecting the people that they are researching okay so but but there are many guidelines outside of so i could um do a, a study personally but it wouldn't and even if it was irb it made, made those sanctions you know but the, the way i did my research might not get uh approval yet for publication yeah so basically the irb process um you before you do your research you have to gain irb approval so you write out how you're going to do the study. Um, a ton of uh, detail is required. And then you submit it to the Institutional Review Board for review. And if they say, yes, you're approved, then you're approved. If they say no, then you have to go through and change and ensure that you are adhering to all of these ethical principles of research. Um, and IRBs aren't uh, uh, necessarily easy to come by. Um, you know, every uh, research university has an IRB, um, and uh, and it's it's essentially uh, it's necessary for your research to be published. Mm-hmm. Um, to so, in one of these big peer review journals. And um, to be published means legitimacy. Would that be true? Yes. So this is how the research is uh, is uh, is published in a way that people see as legitimate legitimate, and um, it's how the research is disseminated. So, um, you know, you're not going to end up on, uh, on PubMed or any of the big research databases uh, if, you're, if your article isn't published in a peer-reviewed site um, or in, in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, and the peer review process also includes a really uh, uh, interesting aspect of um, the research must be replicatable by another lab. Oh, interesting. So if, um, if LIBOR finds that these things are true, and then um, in a similar scenario, the results can't be replicated, mm-hmm. um, then, then that's an aspect that is, that is uh, you know, examined. That's fascinating. So um, LIBOR has started clinical research. 
uh, yeah. which is radical. I know they're um, doing pilot trials on PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, panic disorder, and anorexia nervosa, as most of us simply know as anorexia, uh, which is huge for us, particularly heartfelt true for Emily Noren, author of Unsinkable, employee at the float shop, speaker at the float conference, uh, having been uh, cured of anorexia through floating in her experience. So that's a big deal. And to see if that's replicatable um, is going to be massive, 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 massive. And she holds a major place in Sandra and I's hearts. So um, to see the results of this is, it means a lot to us as well. And I think um, on the next show, we'll talk about um, the presentation uh, that uh, uh that was given um, at the float conference about this exactly. Um, so uh, there's some preliminary information um, That's right. That's right. that was discussed. And boy, just on a personal level, the joy of watching Emily's face during that presentation and sitting right behind her was Dr. Feinstein. Um, oh, so it's right. just this perfect <laughs> image of like just her incredible glee um, at seeing her experience validated in research um, and by others' experience and seeing this begin to reach other individual people with the hope and the promise that perhaps it could affect, um, you know, a much broader range of people. Just, it was so incredible. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, uh, Justin's looking into, looking into the um, combination of treatments during floating, including interoceptive exposure therapy, biofeedback, and meditation. So I think meditation and biofeedback might make a lot of sense to us. Sandra, I know you're going to want to go deep into this because I know it is a huge topic, but can you just give us a real brief explanation of interoceptive exposure therapy? That's a hard one to go into because I'm not entirely sure um, in what in what way uh, uh, Dr. Feinstein is planning on doing okay. that. Let's talk. Can you tell me what interoception is? Yes. Uh, interoception is uh, your internal awareness of your body. So um, whereas, you know, t touch, um, sound, sight, and everything like that, interoception is, uh, is not just the, the way that you physically feel, you know, your stomach or the, all these huge kicks I'm getting from the baby <laughs> um, or uh, other things like that. It's also um, the many functions throughout the body that do things like, um, manage our blood pressure and our heart rate and, um, you know, the, the subtle, um, uh, uh, ways that our body is continuously communicating with our brain. Cool. Thank you for that. Um, something else that he mentions in the speech is that he's looking at a long-term follow-up on how floating can enhance mindfulness and positive emotion in everyday life, uh, which is also awesome. Like, that's also, as Flow Center owners, again, like, that's what we want to hear, right? That's great. And, and it, as, it's all so good. Please. As a clinician who um, has spent a lot of time in inpatient psych units um, with people who are going through treatment with the current treatments that are available, this is a huge and just a heart-wrenchingly beautiful idea that there could be a treatment that not only reduces symptoms but contributes to um, the joy in everyday life. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just absolutely extraordinary um, and uh, something we, uh, <laughs> yet again, I can't, I can't contain my excitement about. <laughs> and and another, <laughs> another big one that uh, he brought up was that uh, next year they'll be able to show 
magnesium, cortisol, and blood markers of inflammation. Um, I know magnesium is the one that uh, I feel like we all want to hear. I know the salt companies want to hear this as well, is that the body's ab absorbing some significant amount of magnesium while they're, they're in the float tanks. So um, that'll, be, that'll be really interesting to, uh, to hear next year as well. Um, also continuous measurement of heart rate, blood pressure, and, and more. So there's so much going on in those float tanks at the library. It's so cool. Uh, he's so getting so much, much done. And, and it's something that uh, while Sandra and I were prepping uh, this episode, she she just mentioned that three years is a drop in the bucket. I mean, that's so little time to get anything done. The amount of information mm -hmm. that's come out of LIBOR is astonishing. That This isn't common. Um, that... <laughs> it's mind-blowing. We just got to give it up I for worked... Justin. I, it's yeah. amazing. I worked for two years in research labs and basically saw no progress at all. Hmm. So in three years, they've not only built a float center, but they have um, very <laughs> incredible research that they are publishing. Is um, Justin an entrepreneur? Does he have the entrepreneurial motor that we have? <laughs> is, is that what's I, going on? <laughs> yes, in the most scientific way. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. And and it is always fun to think that he is, not only is he getting all this research done, but he is running a float center during all of this. I mean, just imagine all the construction woes and everything, the delays and everything just to get your float center open and completely dialed in. And uh, he, he he's accomplished that. And he's also doing all this research uh, along with, and we'll cover this in, in future episodes as well, but all the, the ways that they're measuring the biometrics of people while they're in the float tanks and, and post as well is it is absolutely mind-blowing and just staggering. So, We're seeing magic happen right before yeah, our eyes. We get to follow along. Pretty cool time to be alive. Yeah, yeah. pretty cool time to be in the float industry. Yeah. And had to have access to a float tank, too. It's really For cool. For sure. Um, let's see here. Lance, what do you think? Did we, did we cover things? Does it make more sense? Does it make sense at all? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for Cole's notes. Maybe maybe you'll need to listen no. to it again. What it's good. I got it. I got what's going on. <laughs> yeah. You broke it down beautifully. And what I love about it is there are so many things that you said that will make some great um, tidbits for sharing. Uh, makes it mm -hmm. easy to share with our clients, with our floaters. And um, yeah, that's super exciting. Okay. Good stuff. The salience, the salience network and the default mode network. Default Those mode are yet. the two that are going to be really important. Go ahead and pit, push that uh, that backup button. Go back to those. Review it. I'm going to be doing the same thing um, while I'm editing this show. I'm going to be taking cues on that because uh, I want the refresher as well. And uh, also, I just think people learn. Uh, you know, repetition is fantastic, but hearing it from different people is awesome as well. So I don't necessarily think this is a replacement of Justin's speech. I think it's an awesome supplementary uh, to his speech and just a different way to break it down, talk about it, share a little opinion, conjecture, and hopefully learn it from a, a new angle, which will just um, help cement it that much more is, is my idea. But uh, Sandra, yes. By all means, Justin's the, the best place to hear this from, floatconference.com. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point, actually, is... Um, 
even miss i mean this is a pretty much live recorded uh show and so there can be bits of misinformation or mis misspeaking uh incorrect vocabulary and uh <laughs> if anything i'm sure i'll get a call from justin uh, for any corrections so stay tuned <laughs> i'll definitely make any corrections if necessary as well but um if if i may speak um on behalf of the show sandra i think you did an amazing job thank you so much for being here i think uh, you made this episode incredible. I'm very incredible. happy to be so here. And so um, I, I have to tell everybody, uh, go to Justin's website and sign up for his newsletter um, mm. because he will be uh, distributing the uh, any updates um, to all of us via that newsletter. So um, that is, uh, it'll be in the show notes, but it's laurieinstitute.org slash justin-beinstein.html. And uh, they're right on the right side. You can put your email in and subscribe for any updates, including when this research is published. And I can't wait for that day when we get to send this out. It's just going to yeah. be incredible. Yeah. Cool. Thank, thank, thank you for, for promoting that. I really appreciate that. Again, Sandra, thank you so much. I, I truly, genuinely appreciate it. Um, also, gosh, my gosh, uh, as the mother of my unborn child, as a, as a wife of... <laughs> Master's all right, all right. And, okay, and able to do all this. Okay. I just think it's amazing. I just think it's amazing. Um, I just and I, I think what you guys are doing is amazing. So, well, I um I do want to give a couple plugs here. One, of course, is following us on Art of the Float on Facebook, Art of the Float on Twitter and Instagram. Leaving speak pipes if something didn't make a lot of sense here, or if you caught something that maybe didn't sound right, leave us a speak pipe. It's the gold bar on the left side of our homepage, artofthefloat.com. Leave us a voicemail. We absolutely love hearing from you. Um, and also help uh, promote the show or help support the show. If you like, uh, go to the uh, products page on artofthefloat.com. There is a bookmark for amazon.com. And what that does is adds a referral link. So if you make that your homepage, every time you shop, you don't spend any extra money, but just a few little ducats come our way. And hopefully if everybody signs up, uh, that'll start adding up and, and uh, help, uh, help support the show and, and um, help, help the show sound better, which is really uh, our, our short-term plan here is just making the audio awesome. So uh, let's see here. Oh, and the other uh, really big thing that I want to mention again is we are offering a roundtable discussion on pricing, memberships, and client retention October 19th. That's a Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So if you want to be part of that, uh, of course, stay sh uh, tuned into the show. But what we really want to do is, again, go to artofthefloat.com and sign up for our newsletter. And you'll be the first to know about this and be the first to be able to sign up, find out about pricing, all the good stuff. And... Uh, Let's see here. I think that's about it. So just remember, there's an infinite amount to find in the presence of nothing. So spend some time there. We'll see you next week. You're listening to Art of the Float.